Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 32 of Everything Compliance. The Everything Compliance gang consists of Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, uh, uh, Vice President at Affiliated Monitors, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, and Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London. This is the only roundtable podcast in compliance. I hope you will enjoy this episode. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back with the Everything Compliance Gang. Today, we're going to celebrate um, with a podcast dealing with where we were, where we are, how we got there, and where we may be going from everyone's different perspective. So, with that uh, introduction, Jonathan Armstrong, you have worked in the data privacy, data protection space for uh, quite some time of your professional practice. And I was wondering if you might uh, share with us some of the thoughts you have about the changes we've seen, certainly in the past several years, from Safe Harvard, Privacy Shield, now GDPR, and, and perhaps beyond. What's the impetus for the, some of these changes, uh, and uh, where might these changes be taking us? Yeah, thanks, Tom. I'm very happy to, and uh, congratulations on this milestone in your podcasts. Um, as, so, uh, as I'm sure you know, because you're into that sort of thing, five years ago today, the number one in the UK was We Can't Stop by I don't need to tell you, Tom, but for the audience, Miley Cyrus. And um, and I, I guess that's a sort of a decent theme, if you like, for looking at the fa uh, last five years in, in data privacy. So you're right. I've been practicing in this area, I guess, for about 20 years. And the last five have certainly been the busiest by a margin. We've probably done, probably seen more cases, more substantial developments in the last five than we have in the prior 15. And I think there are quite a few drivers for that. I think one of them is, is Max Schrems and the consumerization of privacy. I'll talk about that in a minute. One of them may be the rise of Facebook and, and this, this uh, concatenation, if you like, between fair trading legislation and fair trading laws and uh, antitrust competition laws and, and privacy coming together as some of the online plays get bigger. And also, I have to say, on a more pessimistic note, uh, partly it's driven by the complete lack of understanding of technology by some of our legislatures, uh, legislators, which again was prominent in some of the Facebook hearings and I think is the driver behind things like the right to be forgotten. Uh, if we start there, for example, the right to be forgotten almost started off to try and protect teenage girls who there was perceived to be an issue that they were taking photographs of themselves partially or wholly naked whilst drunk. I was very much involved in some of the um, so, some of the discussion around those proposals, and I was part of a not-for-profit group that said, so why don't we educate people on the use of the internet and say to them, you know, try and keep your clothes on, try not to drink, uh, and if you can't do those two things, then 
possibly don't take photographs of yourself. And if you can't obey that, then don't upload them on the internet. Instead, we had a theory from a, um, uh, I don't want to use the geriatric, but a let's say a non-digital native politician that 15-year-old girls would prefer to run along to court and try and remove those images rather than be educated in the lack of creation of them to start off with. I think that fails to understand the emotions that, that uh, you know, the 15-year-old girls are going <laughs> through when they see pictures of themselves naked on the internet, and also fails to understand uh, a world in which people who use courts like that are usually people with more significant skeletons in their closet to protect. So as a result, I think we got this lack of understanding of the internet, the lack of understanding of users of the internet, ruling how we regulate the internet. That's never a good thing. And I think that's been a constant theme throughout the last five years. You can see that in, in GDPR, for example. At the same time, we've got this increased almost consumerism uh, around data privacy. We've got people who do understand the internet, like Matt Schrems, and he's not the only one. Uh, some of the pressure groups like La Quadratude Unite, for example, some of the Irish pressure groups, becoming more and more active and understanding more about the way in which the internet works and saying there is a lack of regulation here, partly for the reasons I've said, because regulators and lawmakers don't understand the internet as well as they could. So we've had this situation which five years or so ago might have looked, uh, you know, um, what, what the word? unthinkable that you get Max Schrems, an Austrian law student who takes on Facebook and by proxy the American government, and that leads to the collapse of, say, harbor because of the allegations that were made about the activities of the U.S. security services. And we're now in this weird situation where the U.S. government is applying to join proceedings in Ireland to defend itself. The Irish regulator has referred the matter to the court, partly because she doesn't want to take the decision, I think. The Irish courts referred it to the European court, and Facebook have objected to the whole process saying that that effectively breaches the Irish constitution. So we've got this whole um, raging fire, if you like, of constitutional law, of cross-border data transfer law, because the match was lit by one individual who felt that Facebook had too much data on him. And in GDPR, we see much greater power for individuals to use their rights. And we often concentrate on the extra uh, obligations on corporations and the extra uh, possibilities for regulators. But oftentimes, we miss the fact that regulators themselves are under greater scrutiny on GDPR. In most cases, they'll have three months to put up or shut up to start an investigation or explain why. And if they're not going, uh, why not? And if they're not going to explain why, then individuals have greater rights to run along to courts, to run along to specialist tribunals, to seek to review that regulator's decision or to get redressed themselves through collective actions and civil actions. 
And then I guess the other theme that we've seen, and, and this is a theme that I think started more than five years ago, but the, but the fact that you can go from bright idea in the dorm of a student to a worldwide monopoly in about a year. And I think that has all sorts of ramifications for the way in which the internet's regulated and how corporations behave. You know, if you look at Uber, uh, Uber are an organization that I think in many respects, um, you know, when they were mapping it out in their uh, back bedrooms or whatever, compliance wasn't front and central in that diagram on the back of an envelope. I think that's come back to haunt them. They're, they're heavily recruiting compliance people now to try and save the corporation. But I can tell you from personal experience that they've still got a way to go on that. And that lack of putting compliance professionals into the heart of the business at an early stage will come back to haunt them, particularly as, you know, for the reasons I've explained with that increased militancy of consumers with regulators playing catch up and with legislation like GDPR and the California legislation, et cetera, et cetera, giving more powers to individuals. So I think it's been a roller coaster last five years or so, and I don't see it slowing down at all. You know, the volume of cases we're seeing, some significant cases on, on data protection law in, uh, in Europe keep coming through on a daily basis. You know, we've had yesterday, for example, in the UK, one of the first cases on the allegation that uh, Facebook uh, and other advertising were tampered with by political parties using data required for other purposes with the fine of the Emma's Diary organization who collected details on expectant mothers and then used them to push uh, you know, nursery-related political campaigns onto their Facebook pages, et cetera. You know, I think if we think the last five years has been a roller coaster ride, I'd just say, hold on tight. So would you suggest channeling your inner Betty Davis and uh, put on your seat belt? It's going to be a bumpy ride. It is. And I think we've got at least another five years of rapid change to go in terms of data protection and privacy law. And the fact that you have to report security breaches much more readily in Europe and that means that many more U.S. corporations are going to have to report security breaches much more readily and much more quickly because of the global nature of their operations means that that every other Friday night for most compliance officers is, is going to be a challenge. You know, I say Friday night because my experience is that most most data breaches seem to happen or at least you get told on a Friday evening I was very interested that the UK data regulator said that's her experience across the board as well. So, yeah, buckle up and uh, hold on tight. So let me uh, go back to one of your earlier points, Jonathan, where you talked about sort of the intersection or at least interplay of fair trade, antitrust and privacy, really all in response to Facebook. Um, does Is your sense that European regulators are concerned about the uh, market power, market share, or just the size of a Facebook, of a Google, 
of uh, one of the uh, of Amazon.com, one of the large American uh, tech companies? I, I think that's correct. And I think traditionally the EU has been more ready to use antitrust powers to try and curb the enthusiasm of some of these uh, these online plays. And I think we're increasingly seeing them using uh, privacy law as well. And, and my prediction would be that we're going to see them use fair trading type laws as well. So if you look at somebody like, uh, like Uber, well, they're a quasi-monopolist in, in some parts of Europe and their uh, privacy practices haven't been what they should be. And allegedly, at least, they've failed to be transparent about some of the things that they've done, their pricing model, the fact that they uh, allegedly have priced females more than males, for example. So all of those three things, I think, cause issues for regulators. The challenge, of course, is, is, is what the regulators do and which of them takes the lead and whether regulators can play nicely. Um, first of all, can they play nicely domestically? And secondly, can they play nicely across Europe or globally? And there have been real moves to try and harmonize that. There's an organization called GPEN, which uh, not a lot of people seem to talk about, a very interesting organization. The FTC, for example, is a member of it, along with uh, European privacy regulators. So I think we'll see the rise of organizations like GPEN to try and harmonize these sort of triangular-shaped investigations uh, worldwide. So, Jay Rosen, Jay, you have, uh, Mike and, and Jonathan are practitioners, Matt is uh, in the fourth estate, uh, journalist, but you've been in the product vendor field for compliance for, I think, about five years now. And I've always been interested in your perspective uh, as uh, a vendor or working for a service company. So I was wondering really from that perspective, what have you seen both from the vendor community, but also the people you sit across the table from, the lawyers, the compliance officers, perhaps uh, senior executives, uh, have they become more sophisticated? Has the clients or customers' needs changed? And, and really, what has been your perspective, having been new to this field, really, uh, over the past five years? Yeah, great questions, Tom, and uh, I'll do my best to uh, stay on track and uh, answer them. I actually got a, an entree point a little bit earlier than five years ago, and that would be back in um, 2010 when I joined my old company, uh, Merrill Brink. And uh, what Merrill Brink did was offer translation solutions. And a couple of the places where we noted there were needs for translations were on large multi-jurisdictional investigations. And if we're looking back eight, eight to five years ago, you would normally find that these investigations would be staffed with associates and they would be doing, uh, of course, the brunt of the, uh, the brunt of the grunt work. That's a hard one to say. And, um, at that time, uh, you know, e-discovery was well entrenched, but I don't think that there was, um, a lot of familiarity with how you move data from foreign language 
into an e-discovery tool to do the translation and then move that stuff into the next phase where it would actually be, um, you know, analyzed and looked at for privilege and then whether or not that would be used in the investigation. So although it made a lot of sense to us because we were a company that dealt with language and dealt with data, there was a lot of um, explanation that we had to go through and not so much that there was a, a certain um, expertise that was required, but we really did understand that workflow. So I found in that period from probably 2010 to 2013, um, well, a lot of decisions are made based on price. What we were able to do as an organization at Merrill Brink was get in and to really um, use some case studies to explain how we work with a large um, oil company you know, based in Northern California, and they were running an investigation where um, one of the uh, where some of the ex employees were trying to extort the company for billions and billions of dollars. So they soon came to realize that not only did they need translation done in a timely manner, but they needed it to be done correctly and they needed to be able to trust that the people they were using to um, do the translations were going to keep confidentiality and we're going to be able to work um, basically all hours of the day. So as a global company, Merrill Brink was able to satisfy those conditions. And just as Jonathan was talking about his uh, delight on Friday nights with most data breaches being um, announced, on our Friday night, it was like you would get the call from the law firm. And then when the law firm called, they would expect you to spring into action over the weekend and do everything. So I think when you look at that first round of associates who are out there, 2010 to 2012 and 13, now you've got a situation where they have risen through the ranks. They may have made partner, they may be of counsel, but now we have a whole new generation of folks who understand the whole technology thing very well. And now we're at a point where People are trying to use um, not only um, artificial intelligence, but data analytics and trying to take whatever concepts have been used in e-discovery and finding out, is there a way to do that earlier with translations and to use uh, foreign language terms or to be more politically correct, non-English language terms to uh, basically run against the uh, um, e-discovery sample and to try to minimize the amount of work that you need to do. So that would be the perspective from the uh, service provider of translations on something that's, you know, really uh, a transactional thing. Uh, transitioning over to selling uh, and communicating the value proposition for Affiliated Monitors, Inc., I joined the company um, a year ago, February, and again, those folks who I dealt with on early uh, investigations, now what they would be doing is they would actually be doing the counseling at the company. And where um, affiliated monitors can come in is either proactively can help a company to do any type of uh, assessment of their ethics and compliance programs, and then probably the um, 
a more familiar way where people are understanding a monitor is that you come in after a company has signed a deferred prosecution agreement. So again, uh, to your point, Tom, there is much more sophistication amongst the buyers. So whether those buyers are in-house counsel, outside counsel, uh, buyers within the um, chief compliance officer, they all know that there is different technology out there and, um, you know, they can pretty much figure out what they need. The question is, is again, finding someone who can be responsive in the right time zone, uh, or rather in a timely fashion. And the thing is, is that, you know, sometimes people will get burned on price. And, uh, you know, from a sales perspective, there's always three things that you're looking for. And this kind of stems from Maslow's hierarchy of needs that you want a solution to be good. You want a solution to be inexpensive and you want a solution to be delivered in a timely manner. And it's usually very hard to get all three of those things. Most, most of the times you can get two out of three. And as Meatloaf said, that ain't bad. But I think with this growing sophistication and with the numbers that are tied to these investigations and what's happening, people are willing incrementally to pay a bit more to get quality up front or to make sure they don't have to do something a second time and spend even more money uh, after it was done incorrectly, incorrectly the first time through. So, Jay, uh, you said a couple of things that uh, struck me there, and it was really your first point or one of your first points, which was that uh, certainly at um, Merrill Brink, there, the company had an established e-discovery tool uh, that had that work kind of under their belt, but that really gave them not so much as a tool, but a business process and a way to think through the workflow and that you were able to articulate to people sitting across the table from you, whether it be a general counsel, whether it be a partner in a law firm or other, that it was the workflow process which uh, kind of uh, ended with or spit out a quality product, which was with the ex, which was the expertise lacking in the customer, and that because you had the business process down, you were able to bring uh, a timely, effective, cost-effective, uh, and good service to customers. Did do you did you find has that message not so much changed over time, but is that now something that uh, really resonates? Uh, with customers, or do they understand the business process nature of that type of delivery now? Um, I, I think your latter statement is correct, Tom, that where we've got a whole generation that's been in there now, uh, they pretty much take this as, um, you know, second nature that this is how we're going to do it. And, you know, quite often, um, you know, we'll, we'll get on a new case and we will get um, some uh, young whippersnapper who's going to tell us how they think we should do it. And I always, you know, my, my kind of response to that is, um, you know, Tom, that is certainly one way we can approach this. But let me tell you how we did this for Chevron, or let me tell you how we did this for FedEx, or let me tell you how we did this for X Corporation. So uh, th there are people who sometimes think they, they know more than the expert, and um, it is always a collaborative process, but, um, you know, I think 
they are familiar with what they want. And so we go back again to that original pricing discussion and are they going to be, you know, willing to pay uh, incrementally to have quicker turns on the data or to have more access? And, um, you know, when you look at a translation cost, if you're going from 14 cents a word to 12 cents a word, well, that delta is two cents. You might not think it's a lot, but when you when you uh, spread that across millions and millions of words, it does become significant. So it always used to kind of tickle me that, you know, I was getting raked over the coals for a penny or two. And then some uh, outside counsel was billing them uh, at a much, much bigger rate. So it's you've got to choose your battles. But, um, you know, people are familiar with how to do this process now. And I think what they're hungry for more now, whether we're either talking about, um, you know, proactive compliance solutions or, again, uh, being part of a larger investigation is they're going to uh, at least understand that the tools are out there. They've worked with them in the past. The question is, is do you have the right structure to work with them and can you quickly build up that trust? And as you and I have spoken before, um, it always used to, I used to find it interesting that when I was in the motion picture business, uh, you work together on a crew and you might be there for 70, 80 or 100 days. And just about the time you're getting ready, uh, you know, you're a well-oiled machine and you're working at peak performance, the movie wraps and everybody goes off into their different corner of the world. And I think if you're able to have these processes in place and have a go-to company that you work with, um, you know, you don't have to reinvent the uh, the wheel and you can get in much quicker. So I think those companies who are able to foster the relationships of uh, trust and good quality service are the ones that are going to be more beneficial to work with. Jay, you also mentioned something about uh, in your current role with affiliated monitors and in discussing the value proposition. Do you find that the discussions that you would have now with a compliance professional, compliance practitioner, perhaps a chief compliance officer, or even others within a corporation, that they're able to understand uh, kind of the soft nature of the service that AMI would provide or a company like AMI, but how that would really drive a level of uh, increased um, compliance efficiency and productivity and hopefully um, greater profitability within a company? Or is that uh, really still a, a, a more difficult or challenging conversation? I think within the compliance suite, it's definitely understood. Um, but for those of us who have been working in this arena for some times, we understand that, you know, it's an army of one, two, or three, and they are probably one of the more under-resourced uh, parts in a company. So unless you can, um, you know, we've talked about in the past, how do you move compliance from being um, a cost center to being a profit center? So unfortunately, the folks that tend to get those discussion are the, the people who are now just, you know, coming off a settlement and looking forward to having a monitor for anywhere from 24 to 36 months. So you always find uh, people get religion after the fact. But I think 
nowadays, uh, there's so much information out there about where you're doing business and where you could potentially have pitfalls that people are being more aware and looking at if there is a competitor who is within their same industry or within their same vertical, they may be more apt to take proactive action. So, um, you know, I, I think it's about who the audience is. And just like um, you're talking about that tone of the top flowing down to the, the middle and then flowing down to the corporation, uh, while there may be aspirational values within the compliance suite, they f- still find it difficult to get buy-in from the corporate level. And so I think, you know, to your point, it's something that's going to be changing. Uh, it doesn't happen as, uh, as quickly as we'd like it, but I, I think that folks over the last five years or so are getting the idea and they're trying to figure out how can they sell it to the upper management. All right. Uh, Matt Kelly. Matt, you've uh, you've been a journalist in this field for quite some time, uh, but I'll ask mm-hmm. you about the uh, COSO. Uh, so the 2013 Internal Controls Framework, uh, magically enough, came into effect 2013, now that I've named it that way. But we also had a 2016 ERM framework. And I was wondering uh, what your thoughts might be on how those two frameworks change things or didn't. And do you see a greater integration from compliance, not only from the internal audit, internal controls perspective, but also from the way regulators and industry standards uh, consider compliance? Uh, Yeah, I'll do my best there, Tom. Although, uh, first, I want to admit, uh, I know we had Jonathan quoting Miley Cyrus and Jay quoting Meatloaf. I have been unprepared with a popular song reference, so I will be racking my brain to come up with one by the time I'm done here. Um, but I, I do think that probably over the last five years and even a few more years back before that, one of the key things that has happened in the compliance field is the arrival of these frameworks. Um, it's worth remembering that compliance, as we all talk about it today, really started in 2004 or five with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, and nobody had any decided framework or disciplined approach to try and figure out how would you comply with that law. The SEC pointed to COSO's framework for internal controls that had existed in 1992, And that was certainly outdated by 2005, let alone as we moved into the modern business world. So when COSO revamped the internal control frameworks in first in 2013, um, and then it uh, revamped the enterprise risk management framework in 2017, uh, those are both welcome bodies of knowledge. And we should uh, also throw in there a few other frameworks that have been updated throughout that uh, people use widely in compliance. There's the NIST framework for cybersecurity. There is the PCI DSS framework that you might use to protect credit card data. Uh, the high trust framework came out actually in 2011, but it's been updated for healthcare data. Uh, you could even get a little bit abstract and say that the FCPA guidance, the Justice Department put out in 2012, it has 10 steps. They are kind of, sort of, framework-like, that they give you a sense of direction, um, a sense of what should we be trying to do to approach 
compliance in a disciplined way because companies have a lot of business processes with a lot of different points of risk that they had to bring a more disciplined approach to controlling those points throughout. And the frameworks helped, and that is a good thing. But it's funny that uh, I'm talking about this today because just before this call, I was reviewing the latest SOX compliance survey from Protivity, which came out earlier this week, and it surveyed a 1,000 different SOX compliance people, found, number one, that their SOX compliance costs are still rising. Um, SOX compliance costs are not soaring like they did in the 2000s, but they, you know, they kind of fluctuate up and down, but generally fluctuate more up than down for most companies. But what was telling were the reasons why SOX compliance costs are going up. And a lot of cynics and anti-regulatory people in Washington might like to say it's just Section 404B of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. That is the part that says you must have an annual audit of your internal control over financial reporting. Um, and that is partly a driver of why SOX compliance costs are going up. But the report cited a lot of other forces that are happening that make SOX compliance a difficult exercise. And that could be anything from your company's digital transformation of business processes and all the MBAs running around in your organization. They always like to talk about digital transformation. Won't that be great? In many ways, it is. However, it uh, reorients how your business processes work. And then we're right back to what I mentioned earlier about a lot of points of risk. They've just, they've changed and the risks of how they might fail or be more, be non-compliant. Those have changed compared to whatever non-digital process you had from 1990, whenever. Um, there are new accounting standards around revenue recognition, around uh, disclosure of leasing costs. And Tom, you and I have talked about that recently too. Um, you're going to need to report new things. And while that's a new approach to your financial processes, you're going to need to extract more data, more points of risk that did not necessarily exist five or 10 years ago. Um, pressure from audit firms uh, that are now being really, they're facing pressure from their own regulators and from investor groups to be more skeptical of what a company is saying about its internal controls, uh, even down to you know corporate mergers, corporate restructurings, um, corporate expansions. If you have more locations with internal controls that need to be tested, that drives up your costs. All of that is a long-winded way of saying, as much as we are better off for the arrival of internal control frameworks, because they give us a disciplined approach to thinking about compliance we have an even bigger canvas of what risks we need to worry about. Um, how often did we talk about NIST and uh, data security controls in 2008? Really, we didn't. And I was there talking about compliance in 2008. We were aware of cybersecurity, but we weren't constantly frightened about cybersecurity as we rightly are today. Um, so even as compliance programs are making great strides, and I think they are, uh, we have even more problems piling on to corporate enterprises that need to be addressed. So if you feel like you're falling behind, if you feel like there's even more work to do, if you feel like you're barely keeping up, it's probably because that's true. Um, and I don't necessarily know what the solution there is going to be. I do think that 
over the long haul as technology changes. And Tom, you and I talked again about this on a different podcast not long ago. One of the big changes that's been happening because of digital transformation, the rise of cloud-based services, a lot of organizations now don't own as many assets as they used to. They rent services and assets from others. And the enterprise, quote unquote, uh, they're more about managing the organization of all of those service providers and asset lenders and whatnot uh, to make sure that you're in compliance. And there are more regulations to comply with, and you're complying with them in very different ways. I don't know when we're going to get through that growing pain. Um, there just there are going to be more problems coming. Um, however, as Devo said in their great song. <laughs> Here we go, everybody. Of course, half the listeners just hung up on this now that I've quoted Devo. Uh, As Devo said, when a problem comes along, you must whip it. So I have no doubt that uh, we will continue. We will continue to talk about how to whip these problems into place. But uh, that's that's where we are going to be going, I think, for the next five years. So actually, I have to reference uh, Saturday Night Live, which was the original showing of the whip it video. So... um, uh, uh, Matt, you, in other uh, um, forms and formats, I've heard you discuss the datafication of the business process, including yeah. compliance. Do you see that as either an outcome of some of the uh, uh, frameworks you've discussed or just a, a natural evolution of all business processes? That is a natural evolution of all business processes that has profound implications for audit, compliance, and risk management. Um And we saw that not long ago, the Securities and Exchange Commission dinged a small telecom company up in Boston, $1.9 million, uh, for misleading investors about revenue projections. And basically, the scam was that they were pulling future deals into the current quarter so they could say they were going to make their revenue numbers. Those deals never actually materialized in the quarter, and there's the misleading statement. And then suddenly, boom, we're at an SEC enforcement action. But the interesting part was that the data the SEC could use to um, piece this all together was one half the automated sales processes that the company had been using so that every single deal that had been moved forward and then moved back at the end of the quarter because they weren't going to close it, like all of that was documented. You could see exactly when each deal went from maybe in Q3 to, oh yeah, Q1, definitely, and then back to, well, maybe Q3. All of that was documented. And at the same time, On the email systems, another internal corporate communication that had been processed, that had been digitized, Uh, you had all the email communications from employees basically saying, look, this may seem like a stretch, but we're going to try and make it work. And people saying, I don't think this is going to work. And you had two different business processes that had been datafied, for lack of a better verb. And when you took all that data and stacked it up, you could clearly see there was a regulatory infraction. And I would wonder, could we have brought that sort of case 20 or 30 years ago before email and before um, sales automation software? And I don't think that we could have, but we're going to see more and more of those things. Um, Compliance officers are going to need to be aware of that ability. Regulators are going to use that ability more often. And businesses are going to keep automating business processes because it's good. It's smart. 
except for when you decide to deviate from good behavior, because now that's all going to be digitally documented and hanging in the breeze. And that's what happened to this telecom company here is the SEC saw it hanging in the breeze and they gave it a whack. So I, Matt, I think that's it. Go ahead, Jonathan. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I, I, I think there's some really interesting points in there, uh, Matt. I mean, I think... Uh, from my point of view, I think modern day corporations do less and less themselves. So, you know, whilst they used to be able to play a tune, they can now only conduct an orchestra almost. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, the, many corporations, you know, if you speak to somebody and say, how do you pay somebody? How do you onboard an employee? How do you put them on a flight? They don't know because they've outsourced all of that to Concur or um you know a, a thousand other vendors yep. i think the um i think you've got a very good point about technology as the perpetual witness to bad behavior as well and almost every case we see there is some form of electronic evidence and regulators are getting much better at that you know if you look at the rolls royce dpa there are hundreds of documents that are sweated and there are all sorts of embarrassing emails, including one, tell this guy to get off email. You know, it's um, because, because uh, you, you know, they know they're being, they know they're being potentially, they can be investigated. And, mm -hmm. and yet somebody still says, we'll scrub his face if he doesn't get off email now. Why put that in an email if you think that they're being monitored? And, um, um, but but I think businesses are also struggling with um, with almost. I mean, I, I think we need to have technology neutral regulation, but businesses do need those sort of helping hands, like you've talked about the the uh, you know the uh, FCPA guidance, just as we have it in, in in the UK under the Bribery Act. I think people are struggling, particularly in the technical area. One of the big questions we get at the moment is around what are called TOMS, technical and organizational measures. So, so GDPR, for example, says you shall take adequate technical and organizational measures. Well, whoopee do, what 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 does that mean? And and regulators normally say it depends on the circumstances of the case, which it does. And we will judge whether you've had technical and organizational measures when you have an incident. Now, obviously, they're going to decide in most cases, well, you didn't because you had an incident. So, so the, the, the difficulty for a lot of businesses at the moment and a lot of the really serious thinking that we've done for clients is, okay, so what would adequate technical organizational measures look like for a data-centric company? What would they look like for a retailer? What would they look like for you know, pick a 101 different types of organization. And that's where I think we're going to need real skill from compliance professionals to work out, you know, what adequate looks like, what good looks like, uh, and, and obviously uh, what bad looks like normally hits you in the face, but you need to concentrate on, on the other two as well. And, you know, Jonathan, I would just bring up one other point that popped into my head as I was listening to you. All of this software that we are now using to manage these third-party service providers, um, they all have abilities and configurations to create an audit trail for everything. Mm. The, I guess the, the pitfall for companies, or I don't know if it's good or bad or whatnot, but 
to take full advantage of these services and to use them for your own protection against internal fraud. And let's go mm. back to my, my telecom company. You absolutely would want all of those audit trails turned on so one specific company didn't think about, or one specific employee didn't think, I'm going to bring some deals forward to hit my own quota. You want to be able to catch that. So you turn it all on, but the track, the trap is now it's all on. So when the company itself decides we're going to do this kind of at the corporate level to you know blow smoke up investors' backsides, it's still on and the audit trail still exists. That which you would use to prevent internal fraud against the company also becomes a very powerful weapon against the company when executives want to commit a, a larger scale fraud. So it's more like the there is a no-win scenario for companies once they decide to deviate from good conduct. I suppose that's a good thing, but um, we should just, you know, get the get, get the idea in our head. Some people have asked, "Well, why didn't they just turn off the configurations to pull this off?" You can't because then you expose yourself to somebody else fleecing you the same way you're trying to fleece somebody, and and here we are. Yeah, yeah it's it's similar in some respects to Target. So one of the issues that Target had in their data breach is they had the systems to detect and and monitor uh, the, the type of attack they had, but there was just so much white noise on the system that they decided just to ignore it completely. And mm -hmm. obviously, everybody else has focused in on the fact that that alert was there on their system and they knew it was happening if only they cared to look. And, and I think we are going to see that in the in in the corporate world as 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 systems to detect bad things happen and get more sophisticated so mike volkoff uh what i've really wanted to explore with you mike is over the past five years or perhaps even uh, going back a little bit further have you seen a change in fcpa enforcement or really more continuity well it, it, you know, that's a question of degrees, but I, I, I think it's an interesting topic because what we've, there's, there's a lot that can be said for the more things change, the more things stay the same. But I think what, the, what has really happened is that FCPA enforcement has become institutionalized. Now, I don't mean that in a mental health way that we all get institutionalized at one point or another, but I do mean it in uh, a way that it's become embedded in the Justice Department's fabric. It's a, an initiative that is not going anywhere. Now, there are some people who say, going back to the original uh, enforcement and enactment date from 1977 on, that it was being enforced. It was being enforced, um, but not at, in the same way nor the same sort of institutional forces, which have aligned in many different ways. One, and we hear a derogatory sort of description of this as FCPA Inc., which I think is really a, a really sort of bad and inappropriate way to describe what's occurred. In fact, what we've seen is that the Justice Department, through its own contacts and uh, institutional arrangements and connections with global enforcement and law enforcement has built a global network for enforcement. And in doing that, 
And that's sort of the last trend that I think is going on right now. But along the way, in the five years, what they did set up was predictability and in the enforcement regime, meaning that they were transparent. Uh, they were uh, clear about how they were going to enforce the FCPA. Uh, and going back to what I think is one of the most important documents ever issued by a group of prosecutors in the Justice Department, the uh, FCPA Resource Guide from 2012 was unparalleled, unprecedented in terms of the scope of transparency and in advancing the compliance ball. So the two most significant uh, trends I would see, other than the globalization of enforcement and law enforcement and prosecutors and building out a model that looks very much like the Justice Department's model in other countries, we now have uh, the two other most significant trends to me are, one, the FCPA uh, corporate enforcement policy, but the road that got us there which was through practice, through practice, through settlement, through settlement, through standards, and across uh, different administrations, uh, uh, starting with the Bush administration, you know, uh, Bush two, and the Obama administration, and now continuing in the Trump administration, we have a set of transparent uh, standards that are going to be applied. And that to me is a huge, uh, trend and in terms of the corporate enforcement policy, your presumption of a declination and things like that. That's one. The second and probably most important, second most important is uh, the Yates Memorandum and uh, individual enforcement. The priority, even though it cuts across the FCPA uh, area, it still has had an impact in the FCPA area. And I think it's a good area. Uh, and I've written recently on my blog about deterrence and how important uh, individual criminal enforcement is for purposes of deterrence. I don't think that you get as much deterrence from corporate enforcement settlements and things like that. I think where you get the real deterrence is when somebody goes to jail for purposes of an FCPA violation. Um, one example, in the Keppel uh, Marine settlement that happened last year, uh, I think it was a big deal to attorneys and practitioners in this area when we had uh, an attorney plead guilty, and I think he cooperated, but nonetheless he pled guilty, lost his bar license, obviously, uh, and his involvement in, in the uh, FCPA violation was he wrote a contract that he knew for a third party was being used to um, uh, cloak or disguise uh, bribery payments. So the impact of these individual enforcement actions uh, has been significant. So the way I would look at it is uh, those three trends of globalization the standardization and institutionalization of the process through the enforcement program and the policy, and then the Yates Memorandum in that um, uh, the Yates Memorandum in the focus on individuals. Uh, it's important 
and, and it it doesn't sound like it was you know I may I'm making it sound like it was a smooth transition along the way, and that's not really true. This path was a little bit rocky. Um, recall that you know the FCPA resource guide was written at a time when Congress was getting interested in revisiting the FCPA and uh, modifying it at the behest of the Chamber of Commerce. And it was the FCPA resource guide, which basically politically gave the Justice Department a year to put it together with the SEC and put it out. And I think it was a, a remarkable document, both in terms of its political impact, but even more importantly on the substance, it to me is still is the guidebook for compliance and even compliance outside of the FCPA. Uh, it, it's such an important document. But that was a rocky road. We also had settlements on individual prosecutions where the companies would settle and there weren't individuals prosecuted. And I think people threw up their hands and said, what does an individual have to do to get prosecuted? I still am troubled by the Avon case, uh, for example, is always a great example of individuals who should have been prosecuted but somehow escaped. And there are a bunch of cases where that, that came up. And I think there was some real questioning of the Justice Department about what was their commitment to individual enforcement, not just in the FCPA area. And there were controversial books written, uh, the Chicken Shit Club and other books about how the Justice Department was, you know, just gravitating towards DPAs, NPAs, corporate settlements. And it was too easy to get a big corporate settlement uh, without doing the hard work to put together a case against individuals. So. Uh, that road was not as easy as it sounds. And then we had, um, I think, what's been a little bit of a smoother road because they were able to get the resources to do this, but ultimately to reach out to global partners, train with them, educate them, and uh, build alliances that have clearly borne fruit in many um, uh, enforcement actions. And it's seen by you know, there's a pot of money that's put together and it's divvied up among uh, various enforcement agencies. So that's a long-winded answer towards a real important question. But um, And it's interesting, you know, to see how this trend will go. I think that globalization will continue and I think uh, it'll become even smoother and even more coordinated uh, as time goes on. Um, so I think it's pretty interesting path so far, but there, and by the way, there are a lot of people who went through the justice department who you and I know, Tom, who, you know, this was not done by one group of people. It was done by a sort of per, uh, group of people who I have a lot of respect for, who went through there, did their public service, uh, and also, uh, advanced the ball and, um, each person contributed in a lot of significant uh, ways uh, in, towards these three sort of trends is what I would say. Well, Mike, you've heard um, our other commentators uh, have a musical reference. Uh, Jonathan started off, started us off with 
Miley Cyrus. Jay uh, was able to incorporate meatloaf into his uh, remarks. And Matt even went in a different direction with uh, Whip It from Devo. Do you have any musical reference which might sum all this up for you? Absolutely. Uh, Tangled Up in Blue, uh, one of my favorite songs by Bob Dylan uh, from Blood on the Tracks, a record that I, and this shows you how old I am, a record that I uh, wore down in college uh, because I listened to it so much. But Tangled Up in Blue applies because uh, I've come into contact with too many individuals and companies who get tangled up in FCPA cases uh, and I will tell you this, blue is my favorite color, but uh, they get tangled up and they turn blue from, uh, from having to deal with all of this. So it's a good reminder that compliance and an effective ethics and compliance program, it'll keep you away from being tangled up in blue. But being a defense lawyer and being an FCPA practitioner, uh, if it wasn't for people getting tangled up in blue, I don't know what we'd, uh, what we'd do. So keeps keeps me in business. So, but Bob Dylan says it all, um, and uh, he always has for, from my standpoint. So, um, and I know that uh, he uh, his voice is waning these days. But uh, I haven't followed him as much lately. But uh, back in the day, he was my go to person. Thank you, Mike. So, gentlemen, let us move on to some rants, or perhaps if you have a shout out, and uh, let's go in reverse order. So, Matt, um, I know you've been uh, really working up to uh, probably a two-day rant. So, uh, what's your rant? Well, yeah, I would like to rant about Elon Musk and Tesla. And frankly, I think to do that justice, we would need a whole second hour to the program. But I'll try and keep it at two minutes or less. Um I suppose, suppose specifically I could rant about his um, smart aleck tweet, for lack of a better way to describe it, earlier this week where he just announced on Twitter he was looking at taking Tesla private at $420 a share, which would be a significant markup from where Tesla was currently trading. Um, and that's all he said. I think he said uh, he had some private financing lined up. And he shotguns that onto Twitter Nobody knows. Is he for real? Has he already told other people about this? Has he lined up some support from investor groups? Is he just making a joke because 420 is the number for marijuana in most police codes? And, you know, we had no idea what was going on. Uh, so then Tesla had to put out a formal statement. Um, there are theories that even if this is true, which I'm not sure that it is, uh, Elon Musk might have been doing this just to jerk over some short sellers who were trying to pressure the stock down because they think that Tesla itself is a financial house of cards. Um, so, of course, the stock did go up and that pressured some of the short sellers. Did they take a bath? I, I don't know. The SEC is investigating this, uh, whether it was a violation of regulation fair disclosure, because there are some reports that Elon Musk had told several key investor groups ahead of the tweet that he was going to send it. And I mean, that's a material disclosure. It was selectively done. Um, so is this a violation or not? Needless to say, Tesla's board had no idea that this was coming, which makes me ask, why are you there? And what are we paying you for? Uh, and, you know, they're looking for information. Investors are looking for information. There is no information at the moment. Um, I think 
it was somebody from Bloomberg said on Twitter, and this uh, it really probably sums it up well, Tesla itself might be a suitable publicly traded company. And there are some companies that are not suitable for the public markets. But Elon Musk, I don't think, is suitable to be the CEO of a publicly traded company. He doesn't like dealing with reporters. He doesn't like dealing with analysts. He doesn't like short sellers. I don't know who he does like, but you know what, guy, this is the job. And so if you can't take that, then you lack the temperament for the trade and go and run some non-private company, go work at some think tank, go actually be the head of some venture capital firm or Google Ventures or something where they're cooking up Lord knows what other pie in the sky ideas, which is what Elon Musk likes to do. Um, I actually am not, I'm not one of the people who thinks that Tesla, the corporation is a house of cards. It could be, I'm not clear on that, but it could be a company that uh, pulls itself out. But Elon Musk just He's a jerk, and he causes too many things to causes too many headaches as he goes around trying to be too clever by half. And um, that's just I could go on, but he did nothing productive for Tesla, its employees, or its investors this week by shooting that tweet off. Can I just add to your do list? Do be more respectful to uh, people who put their own lives at risk and rescue people out of Thai caves. Yes, thank you for that, Jonathan. Because uh, talk about well you know, said. <laughs> seven billion people on the world, and somebody had to be the least helpful in that situation. And Elon Musk managed to do it, and just he was a disgrace when he was butting into that whole mess. Yeah, I think he's apologized, and so he should. You can't call people a pedophile in that situation. No. Do you have a rant for us? Well, I'm I'm trying to continue my trend from last time around of being more chillaxed, although my teenage daughter says I'm not allowed to use the word chillaxed anymore. Uh, and so I'd like to give a shout out to Thomas Murphy Hankin of Norwich, England. If you're not familiar with Norwich, I suggest that you immediately Google Alan Partridge, the movie. Then you'll know basically all you need to know about Norwich. But uh why Thomas Murphy Hankin, might you say? Well, the 26-year-old Mr. Hank, uh, Murphy Hankin has taught us today that even when we go for a walk, there are compliance implications. He was found on the high street in Norwich uh, with a pig ranting at uh, everybody uh, around about the place. When the police uh, tried to arrest Hankin, a dog, which seemed to be have befriended the piglet, uh, came to his defence and bit the police. And we found out that uh, there is actually an offence under Section 155 of the Highways Act in the UK of uh, being in a public place with an untethered pig. Um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Murphy Hankin has today pleaded guilty for uh, for allowing that pig to be untethered. So it uh, tells us that even if we're going for a walk next weekend with an untethered pig, there are compliance obligations there as well. So that uh, is certainly a, a great uh, shout-out reminder, Jonathan. Well, I want to join in today uh, on the, on the shout-out side. And uh, my shout-out is for Ben D. Pietro, and hopefully I haven't butchered his last name, 
But for those who don't know, Ben is at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, their online uh, risk and compliance section. He has been there, I think, since 2013, uh, if not one of the first, uh, if not the first, certainly one of the first uh, that have worked there over the years. Uh, Ben is uh, a great journalist. He's been in journalism uh, for a long time. I'll just leave it at that. And his work at the Wall Street Journal has been, I think, an important part of the compliance community, the discussion in the compliance community, and frankly, the moving the ball forward in the uh, uh, fight against the global scourge of bribery and corruption. I think there's a place for the fourth estate in this, and I think Ben has fulfilled that role uh, quite admirably. And so I just wanted to thank Ben for all the work he's done. He's befriended many of us in the compliance community. As Matt Kelly noted, uh, he is a great journalist in spite of the fact that he is a New York Mets fan. But that leads me to my absolute all-time favorite uh, Ben DiPietro's story, which is the following. He was working in uh, Hawaii, I think for the Associated Press, uh, but perhaps another organization, when there was the last Subway series in 2000. And he went to his boss Uh, Ben's a native New Yorker, and he went to his boss and said, look, this will never happen again in my lifetime. I'd really like some time off to go back to New York. And his boss uh, declined to give him that, so he quit. Quit on the spot. And he quit on the spot so he could go back to New York and be in New York for the, uh, turned out, one-week period or maybe 10-day period of the Subway Series. And he said it was one of the greatest joys in his life that uh, the city had a vibe he had never seen. He wasn't around for the 50s uh, subway series between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Yankees. But uh, in terms of following your dream or your passion, I can't think of a much better story. So, Ben, thanks uh, for everything. And uh, we look forward to wherever your next part of your journey may take you. Mike Volkoff, do you have a rant for us? Well, I definitely have a rant. Representative Chris Collins, the first supporter of the Bush administration, uh, was indicted on insider trading. At the same time that this this representative is sitting on the board of a publicly traded company um, and based in Australia, he is sitting on the same committee that has jurisdiction over the uh, healthcare industry and pharmaceutical companies and uh, just blatantly violated insider trader laws and uh, gets indicted, passed along the information, which I love. He passes it to his son, who in turn passes it to his father-in-law, who in turn passes it to another individual. And I read the indictment, and it is not only an an indictment of just the pure lack of ethical concern for anything, uh, but just the blatant greed of a string of people who have no thought whatsoever about the propriety of getting early information on the failure of a drug trial, uh, a clinical trial, and where they knew the stock was going to tank. And for this guy to stay in, and, I, and for him to stay in office is just outrageous. And, I, I, uh, and it just is amazing to me that a person can sit on a board and, and, on the, the be, and be on a committee at the same time without any conflict of interest thought in his mind. 
I mean, how blatant do we want to make it? Where is ethics? Where is any thought of, am I doing the right thing or not? It's just pure, unadulterated greed. May he get convicted and sit in jail for years because he deserves it. Anyways, that's my rant. Jay Rosen, do you have a rant for us today? I certainly do. Uh, last night, uh, I happened to watch ESPN for the first time, and I saw that we are in preseason uh, football. And I should have known about that because of uh, the Hall of Fame recipients in Canton, Ohio last weekend. So bringing on football, I was wondering which NFLers would be <coughs> taking a knee in protest. And a couple weeks ago, the NFL announced a policy that uh, players could privately spend time in the locker room and they wouldn't need to have to be out there during the national anthem. But on the first night of league play, uh, Kenny Stills and Albert Wilson at the Miami Dolphins took a knee. Uh, other players uh, chose to raise their fist in protest. People protested on the um, Philadelphia Eagles, the world champion Philadelphia Eagles. So you can bet that it didn't take less than 128 characters for the president to comment upon this. So uh, what looked like uh, some kind of labor piece that the NFL had uh, come to with the Players Association looks like after one week it's already in tatters. So uh, we will be interested to see what happens uh, in the media. And this will be uh, another distraction between the NFL and the White House. So uh, that is my rant. And um, go Patriots and go Red Sox. Thanks. So, gentlemen, uh, with that, this has been a great uh, episode, and uh, I will uh, uh, sign off. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs> <laughs>